0: be reading this morning from Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21. Hear the word of the Lord. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of a son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was one hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and all who hear will laugh with me. She also said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, for I have borne him a son in his old age? So the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing. Therefore she said to Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice, for in Isaac your seed shall be called. Yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman because he is your seed. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and putting it on her shoulder, he gave it and the boy to Hagar and sent her away. Then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba, and the water in the skin was used up, and she placed the boy under one of the shrubs. Then she went and sat down across from him at a distance of about a bowshot, For she said to herself, Let me not see the death of the boy. So she sat opposite him and lifted her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad. Then the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. "'Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation.' "'Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, "'and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. "'So God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness, and became an archer. "'He dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. "'And it came to pass at that time that Abimelech,' And Fihol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me, with my offspring or with my posterity, but that according to the kindness that I have done to you, you will do to me and to the land in which you have dwelt. And Abraham said, I will swear. Then Abraham rebuked Abimelech because of a well of water, which Abimelech's servants had seized. And Abimelech said, I did not know... I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, nor had I heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. And Abimelech asked Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs which you have set by themselves? And he said, You will take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, that they may be my witness that I have dug this well. Therefore he called that place Beersheba, because the two of them swore an oath there. Thus they made a covenant at Beersheba. So Abimelech rose with Phicol, the commander of his army, and they returned to the land of the Philistines. Then Abraham planted the tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines many days. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Well, the birth of Isaac marks a turning point in the history of redemption. Abraham has certainly played a central role. Uh, The call of Abraham beginning in Genesis 12, uh, the covenant made with Abraham, the promises made to Abraham, and his faith being accounted to him for righteousness all make Abraham a key figure in the history of redemption. But all of those promises revolve around Abraham's offspring, his heir, and that is Isaac. Abraham and Sarah had at one point despaired of having a son themselves, and taking matters into their own hands, had produced a son through Sarah's handmaid, Hagar. That son, Ishmael, is Abraham's firstborn, a true son of Abraham, but not the son of the promise. Isaac is the son of the promise. Now, the promise had been expanded and clarified to state that the promised son would come both from Abraham's own body and from Sarah herself. Twenty-five years have transpired since Abraham was called. And finally, that promised son is born. And so his birth marks a turning point as this long-awaited promise is finally kept. And yet the biblical account seems somewhat anticlimactic. Where well, there are only 7 verses here dealing with the birth of Isaac, there's far more written concerning Isaac and his birth before he's born by way of promise than there is concerning the actual event of his birth. We actually have three events recorded for us in this chapter. The birth of Isaac, which is seven verses. The casting out of Hagar and Ishmael, which is 14 verses. And then the covenant of peace between Abraham and Abimelech, which is 13 verses. So there's actually more about these other two events than there is concerning the birth of the promised son, which seems kind of odd given the anticipation that was built up to his birth. But when we stop and think about it, how much is written in the Old Testament concerning the coming of Christ? Promises and prophecies of the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the greater prophet than Moses, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse, the son of David, the good shepherd, the servant of the Lord, the ruler to come from Bethlehem, the virgin birth, and on and on it goes. And When we get to the New Testament, the record of the coming of the king, only two of the four Gospels even record a narrative of his birth. And Matthew presents us a genealogy which takes 17 verses and then dedicates a mere eight verses to the birth of the Savior. Luke precedes the birth narrative with some angelic announcements and a narrative of the birth of John the Baptist. And then in chapter 2 gives us 21 verses, maybe 38 if we're generous, concerning the birth of Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that the birth of Christ isn't important. It's, It's massively important. It's foundational to our faith. It's the fulfillment of all those promises in the Old Testament. And the incarnation is a very, very important doctrine for the Christian faith. But the event of his birth is not really given that much attention in the overall scope of things. It's established because it is very important to establish it that God himself came and was born of, May, of the virgin, took on flesh, but that's not the sum total of the promises. He, he was born so that he could fulfill the promises to crush the head of the serpent, to fulfill all righteousness to keep the law perfectly, to bear the sins of his people, to die a substitutionary death, to redeem his people, to accomplish their salvation, to conquer death in his resurrection, and to reign victorious as their king. Well, the same is true of Isaac here in Genesis 21. The promises did concern this son to be born as an heir of Abraham, but they weren't limited to that. There's much more contained in the promises than merely the birth of a son. He was to be Abraham's heir, the beginning of a great nation, the son of the promise through whom the promised Messiah would be born. His birth is important, but it's not the climactic end of the story. It's another step in the history of redemption, but a very important step. And so what I hope to do this morning is to help us see how all three of the events recorded here in Genesis 21 are actually working together to make an important point about the promises of God, and then to see how all of this points forward to the birth of Christ and works itself out in our faith. And the main point this morning is simply this, that God, in His infinite wisdom, keeps His promises at exactly the right time. God, in His infinite wisdom, keeps His promises at exactly the right time. And we see this truth empathized for us uh, here in the first two verses of our text, verses 1 and 2. And the Lord visited Sarah as He had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as He had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time, Of which God had spoken to him. So we're told three times in two verses that things have happened just as God said they would. God visited Sarah as he had said. Now, this word visited is the same word that is later used in the story of Joseph when it says that he was appointed to oversee the house of Potiphar. Oversee, it's the same word. And so what it means is that God oversaw Sarah so that she would conceive and bear a child. He oversaw the conception of Isaac. Now, we're told that God did for Sarah as he had said. That is to say that he performed the action he had promised. He caused her to conceive and to have a son. Verse 2 then tells us that we know these things because, or for, Sarah actually did conceive and give birth to a son. And she did so, the text says, at the set time of which God had spoken. So not only did things happen just as God had said they would, but they happened when God said they would. A few chapters earlier, God had specified this timing. and In chapter 17, verse 21, he had said, But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. And again, in chapter 18, verse 14, Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son." So God, in his infinite wisdom, keeps his promises at exactly the right time. The difficulty for us is that we don't always know when that time is. We don't always see the wisdom of of waiting. Why does God wait so long to fulfill his promises? Abraham and Sarah grew impatient waiting. They attempted to keep God's promise for him, resulting in the birth of Ishmael. But God had a plan, and his plan included the perfect timing. God isn't in a hurry to do things. His timing is not our timing. We have to trust that he knows what he's doing, and he is working out all things according to his plan. Abraham was 75 years old when God called him to leave his home in Ur of the Chaldees and to travel to the Promised Land. Now, we're told in verse 5, now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Why would God wait 25 years to keep this promise? And we know this wasn't just the the, natural course of events that it just happened to work out this way. First of all, God was the reason why they didn't have children sooner. Abraham had Uh, been speaking to Sarah about this uh, a few chapters earlier in chapter 16. And so Sarah said to Abram, see now the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. God prevented them from having children sooner. He didn't allow them to have children in the normal course of events as would naturally happen in a marriage under normal circumstances. Well, why? Why would he delay the birth of this promised son by 25 years? Well, we're given a clue in verse 7. She, that is Sarah, also said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? For I have borne him a son in his old age. No human in their right mind would have said, Abraham and Sarah will have a child when Abraham is 100 years old and Sarah is ninety. It's clear to everyone that this child was the result of a miracle, not the normal course of events. This was part of God's plan. God had promised a son who would be their heir, but he wanted it to be perfectly clear that the son who would inherit the blessing, through whom the covenant promises would be fulfilled, was this particular son and no other. And so God planned his birth in such a way as to make it clear that this was God's doing, not man's. This was special. It was miraculous. It was clearly of God. No one could take the credit for Isaac's birth other than Almighty God. So at least one reason for the delay was to show the power and the glory of the Almighty in keeping his word and to see to it that no one could claim this was just a natural birth. We also see here the faithfulness of God. He promised, and then he brought it to pass. He kept his word. Men, and by that I mean humankind, not just males, but men too often do not keep their word. Sometimes it's because we're simply not trustworthy, but often it's because we don't have the power. We can't deliver. We don't have the capacity to keep the things that we might promise. Not so with God. Is anything too hard for the Lord? The answer is a resounding no. If he promised it, we can have confidence that he will bring it to pass. Maybe not in the way or at the time that we would have liked or expected or hoped for or even conceived of ourselves if we were the one making the plan, but we're not the one making the plan. It's God's plan, and he will keep his promises, and his timing is perfect though quite often beyond our understanding. God declared in Isaiah, "'Remember this and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, "'My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure.'" calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. God accomplishes all that he plans. He keeps all that he promises. And we see this in the birth of Isaac. Now, after his birth, we're told in verse four, then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac When he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. So Abraham obeyed the command of God and kept the covenant signed. This is the first time in the biblical text in which we see a child being circumcised on the eighth day. The previous mention of circumcision had been one year. Prior to this, when the promise had been made that Isaac would be born at this time, and the commandment had been given to circumcise, at that time, Abraham circumcised all the males of his household. Abraham was 99 at the time, and Ishmael, his firstborn, was 13. Here we see for the first time an infant receiving the sign of the covenant on the eighth day. And this is significant. There were medical reasons having to do with vitamin K and blood clotting, but there's a theological reason as well for circumcision to take place on the eighth day. Circumcision as a sign of the covenant foreshadows for us the circumcision of the heart, the cutting away of the sin nature, so that when God considers us, he no longer considers our sins. They have been cut off and thrown out. He only considers the righteousness of Christ applied to us by faith. And so Colossians calls this the circumcision of the heart. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Circumcision of the flesh under the Old Covenant and baptism under the New Covenant are both signs of the internal work of the Holy Spirit to take away the old man and to bring spiritual life to those who were previously dead in sin but have now been made alive in Christ. There is a close connection between baptism and Christ's resurrection, Baptism pictures that for us by the coming up out of the water, raised with him through faith, the text says. But that connection is there as well between circumcision and resurrection. Christ was resurrected on the first day of the week, Sunday. That's why we gather as Christians to worship on Sunday, because of the resurrection. Every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection of Christ But consider that the first day of the week corresponds to the eighth day. Seven days in a week, the eighth day would be the first day of a new week, the first day of a new work of the Spirit. Circumcision being performed on the eighth day points the way forward to the resurrection of Christ on the first day of the week. Arthur Pink wrote, Judicially, we have been circumcised, and God no longer looks at us in the flesh, but in Christ. For circumcision, typically and spiritually, is separation from the flesh, and the eighth day brings us onto resurrection ground in Christ. So even in the circumcision of Isaac on the eighth day, there's a shadow here of Christ's work to come. Now there's one more thing to note concerning the birth of Isaac before we move on, and that is his name. We're told in verse 3, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him whom Sarah bore to him Isaac. Now the name Isaac means laughter. That's what the name means. And you'll remember that Abraham laughed for joy and delight at the promise of God when it was revealed to him that he would have a son. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. The text said in chapter 17. Now Sarah also laughed, but she laughed in unbelief when this was revealed to her. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself. Now the child of promise comes, and he is named Laughter. And Sarah responds to his birth, this time with godly laughter of joy in verse 6. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and all who hear will laugh with me. This is a laughter of joy at the birth of the promised son. And Sarah is confident that this birth will be received with joy by all who hear of it. But it isn't. And so we come to the second event recorded in the chapter dealing with the casting out of Hagar and Ishmael. Verse eight sets the stage for us. So the child grew and was weaned and Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. So on the day that Isaac passes from the dangers of infancy into toddlerhood, Abraham throws a feast to celebrate. Not everyone though is excited to celebrate this new heir. In verse 9, we read, And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, scoffing. Now, the word translated scoffing or mocking in some translations is the same word that is used in verse 6. It means to laugh. She saw Ishmael laughing. He's laughing at his baby brother, whose name is Laughter. Now, Ishmael isn't laughing with delight and joy. He's laughing scornfully or mockingly. I don't know if he's laughing because of the name Isaac or if he's laughing because everyone was making such a big deal out of his younger brother when Ishmael considered himself the firstborn and the rightful heir. Depending on Isaac's age when he was weaned, Ishmael is somewhere between 15 to 17 years old at this point. And we know that teenage boys are prone to mocking and making fun of others. He was likely doing so in front of other boys in the household who were his own age, the sons of servants and employees. Sarah's words in the next verse indicate that the inheritance was at the forefront of her mind and may have even been referenced in Ishmael's words as he laughed. Therefore she said to Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. Now Abraham's not happy about this. He, he loves his son Ishmael. He didn't want to send him away, but God spoke and told him that Sarah was right. Ishmael was not to inherit with Isaac. Verse 12, but God said to Abraham, do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondswoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice, for in Isaac your seed shall be called. But then God promised that even though Ishmael was not to inherit the promised land, he was not to inherit the blessings of the covenant, he would still enjoy the favor of God because he was Abraham's son. Verse 13, yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondswoman because he is your seed. So Abraham sends Hagar and Ishmael away. They wander in the wilderness until they run out of water, and Hagar is afraid that her son is going to die. In verse 16, it says, Then she went and sat down across from him at a distance of about a bowshot, For she said to herself, Let me not see the death of the boy. So she sat opposite him and lifted her voice and wept. But even in this moment of despair, God hears and intervenes. And so we read in verses 17 and 18, And God heard the voice of the lad. Then the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. Now God had told her this 15 years earlier in chapter 16 when she had first fled because of Sarah's harsh treatment. But here, he reaffirms his promise concerning Ishmael. God then opens her eyes so that she can see a well of water, and Hagar and Ishmael are saved from death. Ishmael grows, he marries a woman from Egypt. But what does all this have to do with the birth of Isaac? Well, there are two things to note in this passage regarding the relationship between Ishmael and Isaac. First, note that Ishmael laughed in scorn and mocking of Isaac. The history of Ishmael laughing at Isaac then served Paul's ministry nearly 2,000 years later. When Paul takes the history of Sarah and Hagar in Galatians and applies it to the Christian church, he picks up this point and he says, Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Now, his point was concerning the Jews who were imposing the law on the Gentile believers in the churches of Galatia. But then Paul goes on to say, nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the freedwoman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Sarah's desire And the Lord's command to cast out Hagar and Ishmael because Ishmael was not to be a joint heir together with Isaac is taken by the apostle to make the point that those who believe, those who are of faith are the true sons and rightful heirs of the blessing of Abraham. And that those who are descended from Abraham according to the flesh, but who do not believe in Christ are like Ishmael. They are cast out and do not inherit the blessings of the new covenant. The point is, Hagar tried to leave 15 years earlier when she was pregnant, before Ishmael was born. And what happened at that time? God instructed her to return, to submit herself to Sarah, even if she was treated harshly. But now, at the right time, God commands that Hagar and Ishmael should be cast out. And why? Because the time had come when Ishmael mocked Isaac and Sarah spoke concerning the inheritance, and these things were recorded for us in the Holy Scriptures so that the Apostle Paul, 2,000 years later, could reference them as he is ministering to the churches in Galatia. If Hagar had left when she first wanted to 15 years earlier, This history wouldn't have been here. It wouldn't have been recorded in this way. But God meant it to happen this way and at this time so that it would be there 2,000 years later for the benefit of the church through the teaching of the Apostle Paul. God had promised Abraham a son by Sarah and that that son would be his heir, not Ishmael. And God, in his infinite wisdom, keeps his promises at exactly the right time. Now, the final event in the chapter relays the the striking of a covenant between Abraham and Abimelech, and one of the things we need to establish here is the timing of this event. Verse 22 says, and it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you and in all that you do. Now, I take that time referred to to be the time period between Isaac's birth and Ishmael's casting out. Sometime in this period of a couple of years, this event takes place. The final verse of the chapter concludes things by saying, And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines many days. Many days could be taken to mean several years. And so Abraham is living in the territory controlled by the Philistines. He journeyed there in chapter 20, And has remained. Abimelech has seen the power of Abraham's God firsthand, and so he comes to remind Abraham of their friendly relations and to ask for a covenant of peace between them. Abraham agrees to this, but he decides now would be a good time to bring up a dispute over a well that Abraham's servants had dug and Abimelech's men had claimed for themselves. Abimelech claims ignorance of the situation, much as he had in chapter 20 concerning Sarah. Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, nor had I heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. So they make a covenant of peace between them. But Abraham sets aside seven ewe lambs, and Abimelech asks him, what are these for? And Abraham tells him that these are to be given to Abimelech, and when he accepts them, it is a testimony that the well belongs to Abraham. So we read in verse 30, and he said, you will take these seven lambs, from my hand, that they may be my witness that I have dug this well. And so Abimelech agrees, they make their covenant, and then they part ways. Abimelech returns to Gerar, his city. Abraham stays near Beersheba, which is what he calls it. It means the well of the oath or the well of the seven. Abraham plants trees there, and he calls on the name of the Lord, meaning probably that he built an altar and worshiped in this place. Isaac will later build an altar in the same location in chapter 26, where it says that he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. Now, the name that Abraham worships God by at this time is the everlasting God, which is Elolam, God everlasting, or the forever God. This name is significant when we take notice of the location in which this event occurs. Verse 34 says that they are in the land of the Philistines. In chapter 20, we saw that they were in Gerar, a Philistine city, that was located in what would later become the territory of the tribe of Judah. Here we see that Abraham names this location where the well is, Beersheba. Now if you have maps in the back of your Bible and you look at those maps and you find one that will show you the the land allotment to the twelve tribes of Israel, you will find Beersheba on that map and see that it is located within the territory of the tribe of Simeon somewhat southeast of Gerar, which was just outside Simeon's territory in the land of Judah. Simeon was located in the middle of Judah and is surrounded, completely surrounded, by the territory of the tribe of Judah. My point is, this is called the land of the Philistines, but it is located within the promised land. These events do not take place in a foreign country. They take place in the land which had been promised Abraham and his heirs. Isaac, the son of promise, is born in the promised land, but Abraham does not yet possess the land. We're told in Hebrews that by faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. So Abraham lived in the promised land, but he didn't possess it. He lived there as a stranger and a foreigner dwelling in a foreign land. The land still belongs to the Philistines at this point. But Abraham trusted in the forever God. And so Hebrews records, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Abraham did receive the promised son, an heir, but he didn't receive the promised land to be a possession for him and his descendants. That would come some 400 years later. But Abraham had faith in the forever God. His faith is apparent. He plants trees that would be enjoyed by future generations. He trusted that God, the everlasting forever God, would keep his promise at the right time and that Abraham's descendants would possess this land. God in his infinite wisdom keeps his promises at exactly the right time. And so we can see that all three episodes here in chapter 21 are working together to make that point. God keeps his promises at exactly the right time. So, the time of his choosing according to his plans, which are higher than ours. Now let me point out some of the correspondences between the birth of Isaac and the birth of Christ, particularly where this idea of God keeping his promises at exactly the right time is concerned. First, just as Isaac is the promised son of the covenant, so Christ is the ultimate promised seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15, the seed of Abraham in Genesis 22.18. Second, the birth of Isaac and of Christ are both miraculous births. In Isaac's case, both Abraham and Sarah are old, beyond the age of having children. In Romans 4, we're told of Abraham that not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. Abraham and Sarah are old at this point, the reproductive abilities of their bodies has failed in such a way that their bodies are essentially dead. It took a miracle for God to bring life from these ancient bodies. The birth of Christ, though, is even more miraculous. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. It was a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit that caused the Virgin Mary to conceive and to give birth to the son of the promise. And remember when the promise of Isaac is revealed to Sarah, her response, when she's told that she will have a child in her old age, she says, surely, shall I surely bear a child since I am old? To which God answers, is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, compare this to the announcement of the birth of Christ to Mary. And she says, How can this be, since I have not known a man? To which God answers, For with God nothing is impossible. The birth of Isaac, the son of promise, is meant to point forward to the birth of Christ, the promised seed. Finally, I would point out to the, the main idea of our text that God, in his infinite wisdom, keeps his promises at exactly the right time. Verse 2 said, For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. Isaac, as we have seen, was born at exactly the right time, according to the sovereign plan of God. The same is true of Christ. Galatians Chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. The seed of the woman had been promised in Genesis 3.15, but God in his infinite wisdom keeps his promises at exactly the right time. In the fullness of time, at the appointed time, Christ was sent into the world. It was the time of God's choosing. The family of Abraham had become a great nation. They had experienced delivery from bondage in Egypt, the miracle of the plagues, the wilderness wandering, the taking of the promised land. They had experienced the life of blessing in the land, the kingship of the house of David, the ministry of the priests and the prophets. They had also experienced exile in Babylon because of their sin and their failure to keep the law and the covenant. The stage was set for the coming of the Messiah, the king who would deliver them from bondage to sin, who would conquer their true enemy, the great high priest who would offer himself as a perfect sacrifice to atone for the sins of his people, the prophet who would speak for God perfectly because he was God, the good shepherd who would gather his people together from among the nations where they were scattered as spiritual exiles. The Roman Empire had connected the nations of the world with roads and shipping in a way that they had not been connected since Babel. Alexander the Great had spread the Greek language throughout the known world so that the message, the good news, the gospel of Christ could go to the nations and they could understand it in a way that had not been possible since Babel. It was at exactly the right time, according to the predetermined purpose and foreknowledge of God, as Peter said in his sermon at Pentecost. Just as Isaac was born in the promised land, but while it was under the control of the Philistines, Christ was born in the promised land while it was under the control of the Romans. But this served the purpose of God, for the spread of the gospel to the nations, that the promise might be fulfilled, which he had made, saying, And in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. The birth of the Savior may have looked delayed from the perspective of the Israelites in Egypt or in Babylon, but God in his infinite wisdom keeps his promises at exactly the right time. Abraham knew this. And so Jesus testifies, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. He rejoiced, perhaps with laughter, as he had at the announcement of the birth of Isaac. But how did Abraham see Jesus' day? By faith. Remember that Hebrews had said, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. Abraham saw Christ's day by faith and he was glad. We look back on the earthly ministry of Christ 2,000 years after it happened, but we share something in common with Abraham. Abraham dwelt in the already not yet. He had received the promised son, but not the promised land, not the promised seed who was Christ the Messiah. Some of the promises had been kept, others were delayed further into the future. And so Abraham lived in this tension between the already and the not yet. We also dwell in the already and the not yet. We have received the promised Redeemer. We have the testimony of Christ in the Scriptures. But like Abraham, we still wait for the fulfillment of the promises. Promises of an inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth. Promises of glorified bodies in the resurrection. Promises of freedom from sin, sickness, and death. Promises of everlasting life in the presence of the forever God. The promise of the return of the King in glory to bring all these things to pass. And like the apostles, we want to know when. When will these things be? When will Christ return? When will he establish the kingdom? When will he keep these promises? And we hear the same answer that Christ gave his apostles. It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. It's not ours to know when he will return. That day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So what are we to do? Well, according to Christ, we are to take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. And so like Abraham, we look forward with hope and like Abraham, we should do so with joy, even with laughter of delight in what God has promised to do, knowing that God in his infinite wisdom keeps his promises at exactly the right time. Let's pray.